0: Well good morning You know Jesus was no angel Ain't that the truth To begin our understanding or begin understanding our passage And uh, we're looking in Hebrews um, Hebrews chapter 2 But to begin to understand that we have to go back to Hebrews chapter 1 In fact you can go all the way back to uh, verse four, and this whole passage from chapter one, verse four, through to chapter two, verse nine, is all about angels. All about angels and how they are subject to Jesus. Usually, that phrase, that uh, one would, the phrase I just mentioned, would not be a compliment. Jesus was no angel. It's uh, it's not a compliment. However, he was and is far superior to angels. And this is precisely the point the writer is seeking to make. Jesus is no angel for he is superior by far in every respect. And next week we're going to take, in a sense, a little detour. I trust that Kate will be with us next week and uh, she'll be able to bring the message from the first four verses of chapter 2 because tucked away in the middle of this, this complete passage is this little detour, this little dis, this, um, detour into talking about salvation and it's like the writer says, oh and by the way, pay careful attention that you don't take your salvation for granted those first four verses But we continue today in his thoughts concerning angels and how Jesus is so much superior, more superior to them, that the son should demand much more in terms of respect than the servants. And if you think about the parable of the tenants in Matthew Matthew chapter 21, Jesus there is actually speaking to the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, but the same principle applies. The son of the landowner should command all respect. Not going to respect the, the servants, then respect the son. The previous verses in chapter 1 concerning angels the writer had emphasized that Jesus is God's prophetic voice, his son, his appointed heir, his creative agent, his personified glory, perfect revelation, God's cosmic sustainer and is the unique sacrifice. Now the writer looks again toward the future to highlight Jesus' superiority over angels. I mentioned when we started this series that the Jews at this time were facing a complete paradigm shift in their thinking that required them to understand God in a new light, that is, to understand God through Christ. Christ. That their religious activities from the past under Judaism was actually all pointing to and was fulfilled in Jesus. And so much of their understanding of God, their belief, was now in question. And it required a whole paradigm shift for them. But faith in God requires us to trust Him, to trust His Word without having all of the answers to our questions in place necessarily. We don't have to have all the answers. All of our ducks don't need to be in a row for us to have faith in God. Faith is just that, it's faith. It's a reliance, a confidence, a belief, it's trust, even when we haven't got it all figured out. We have faith that the toaster will work when we turn it on Yet, most of us in this room probably don't have a clue how electricity works. But we believe it'll work. We trust it will. We obviously don't know all things about God, but we do know enough to place our faith in Him. Here in our passage, the writer is seeking to correct the faith that the people had in angels and turn that around to help them to place their faith firmly in Jesus, not in angels. He seeks to correct their understanding of how angels, how Jesus and how human beings all fit together in God's plan or the hierarchy of interaction, if you like. And so he he just said in chapter 1, verse 14... Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? And then he does this little detour for four verses thinking about salvation. They would all agree that the angels are sent to serve human beings such that they are there to lead us, lead human beings, into salvation. They'd agree with that. And so the angels are thought to be pretty high in the hierarchy. They have an important job. However, we now come to verses 5 to 9 in chapter 2. And verse 5 must be read in the light of Deuteronomy 32, eight, And not just in the light of that verse, but keeping in mind the version that they would have understood at the time. And that version was the Septuagint. The Septuagint was... Koine Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. It had become available in the synagogue some 300 years before Christ and so the Old Testament originally written in Hebrew approximately 300 years before Jesus was translated into the trade language of Koine Greek. Deuteronomy 32.8 reads this, this way. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, he set up boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. The Septuagint doesn't read that way. The Septuagint reads, according to the number of the angels of God. That greatly alters the meaning and greatly alters their understanding of the importance of angels. Their understanding was that God had apportioned angels to designated areas and people groups under their control. <clears throat> Therefore, we better the people's thinking was, we better respect and give attention to the angels, we should even worship them. The writer of Hebrews seeks to challenge that thinking as he speaks of the future age to come. And he says from verse 5, it is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified and you've probably all done just exactly what he's done. Somewhere in the Bible it says, whatever, There's a place where somebody has testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned them with honour and glory and put everything under their feet. The world to come is, yes, the world to come and it will still be the world to come. But what a hope we have, what a future awaits believers When in the fullness of glory, that'll be a wonderful day. But the age to come will not be under the authority of the angels, the writer declares. And neither is our present age or our past as it was King David who declared in Psalm 8. The writer of Hebrews is quoting from Psalm 8 in verses 6 and 8. And you can imagine King David, he's looking up into the heavens, he's meditating upon the glory of God who has made the heavens and the heavenly bodies. He, God, bent down and gathered some clay and he moulded a man, breathed his life into that man, making him into his own image. And when he was done, he looked and said, perfect, perfect. And then he made the man ruler over everything else that he had proclaimed perfect. That's what David was praising God for. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you would care for him. God is mindful of us. He cares for us. How amazing as you consider all of creation, the galaxies, that God is thinking of you, that God cares for for you. We come under God's supreme favour. He didn't make us and simply leave us to rot in our sinfulness. We are favoured by God, cared for by God. He has our best interests at heart. The creator of the galaxies is thinking of you. and we were made not on the same plane as the animals in fact just a little lower than the angels and we as human beings are crowned with glory and honour as God placed all earthly things under our feet we were crowned with honour and glory From the dawn of creation, we have been just a little lower than the angels in that we are physical and we are earthbound, yet we are meant to reign over the rest of the created order. This is the beautiful picture and the position that human beings enjoyed at the beginning. We read in Genesis 1, God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens And over every living thing that moves on the earth, have dominion. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every kind of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. Everything he made was very good. Sin, however, has destroyed this. Back to Hebrews chapter 2, the end of verse 8, we read, Yet at present we do not see everything subject to them, to, to humanity, to humankind. Not all things are now subject to us. As a result of the fall, there were consequences that meant that we are subject to a broken world where now we experience pain and suffering, where men seek to rule over women, where weeds and thistles abound, where we labour to provide for ourselves, where death now comes to every person at some point. God's original plan for us, his supreme favour upon us, crowning us with honour and glory, placing us as servants over his good and perfect creation meant that we wouldn't experience pain and suffering. Neither men or women would seek to rule over the other where God would provide for our every need as we enjoyed an intimate relationship with him. And death didn't exist. We would live for eternity. Thus we come to verse 9. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour Because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This is the first time the writer of Hebrews has used that name for Jesus. Drawing his argument to its climax, that although Jesus was a man who walked this earth, created a little lower than the angels for a little while, he outranked them in every respect. He outranked them in authority, in power and in that they were required to worship him. And although once a little lower than the angels in physical form and earthbound, he is now exalted to the right hand of God the Father. He is crowned with honour and glory because he suffered death that we believers wouldn't have to through his death he has restored us in relationship with our god and father and by his presence by the ministry of the holy spirit we are being transformed being restored being conformed into the image of christ Ultimately, upon the close of time when Christ reappears, we will be restored to the fullness of God's original plan. As the Apostle John records, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any anymore for the former things have passed away. God exalted him, Jesus to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. All praise to our glorious God and Saviour. Every knee should bow in heaven. Every knee on earth should bow our saviour what a wonderful saviour we have we're going to stand and sing our closing song and it's a song of celebration and if you would like to respond to Jesus because of who he is and what he's done for you as you've been reminded today of the, the wonder of his sacrifice on the cross Tony so ably led us through that and to what God is preparing, what Jesus is preparing for us in glory, has prepared. We look forward to that. If you'd like to respond to him in salvation, then I encourage you to do that.